Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Dr. Stephen McBride uh, is a historical archaeologist. Uh, he is in Lexington uh, with an MA and a PhD from Michigan State University. Uh, Dr. McBride uh, was at the University of Kentucky for some time, and uh, he is now uh, working on a number of other projects that we're going to talk about today. One of his interests uh, that came to him when he was still at UK was the Camp Nelson project down in Jesmond County. Uh, we'll talk about the, the history of Camp Nelson and, and what uh, uh, is going on there today and how that uh, may, may change uh, in the future, and some other projects, too, that he's worked uh, in uh, and around uh, for these many years having to do with uh, our uh, heritage uh, in the Civil War and, and uh, how active uh, the Kentucky sites were in there. So, Dr. McBride, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. Let's uh, first of all begin uh, by just by just talking a little bit about your background, how you sort of, um, uh, if you will, um, became interested in Camp Nelson and, and, and um, uh, what that uh, now has meant to the rest of your, your life and your career. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I always was interested in the Civil War as a child. And then while I was at UK, I had an opportunity to do a project uh, at Camp Nelson for an AT&T fiber optics line. Uh, And I I used that project to uh, do more archival research as well as archeology, span went to uh, Washington to the National Archives and then um, published uh, an article and then the U.S. 27 four-laning highway project had been in the works for a number of years, and uh, a few years after I had done the AT&T work, um, I was actually hired by a, a engineering company to do the archaeology for the for the highway, and then it just really kind of took off after that, and I have stuck with it ever since for about. Uh, <laughs> 25 years or so. So for those who don't uh, know uh, Camp Nelson and um, its significance, uh, tell us about it. Well, Camp Nelson started uh, as a U.S. Army supply depot in 1863, uh, also a recruitment and training camp and a hospital facility um, under what was called the Army of the Ohio. Uh, I think most of the uh, passion and interest in it today is because in 1864 it became the state's largest uh, recruiting and training center for African-American soldiers that were called United States Colored Troops and as a large refugee camp for the wives and children of uh, these soldiers. So uh, I'm curious to, to why this location for African-American troops or the mm-hmm. colored troops, uh, as they were known as, as that time, rather than some other location. What, what was it about Jessamine County that, that um, somebody designated that as the place mm-hmm. for them to be? I think it, it had been started earlier, as I said, as a supply depot, particularly to supply the Knoxville campaign 
Uh, so they placed it uh, down on US, what's now US-27 with the idea that soldiers would uh, travel down to Knoxville, overland. Uh, and then in 64, I think it was because it was the largest camp in the central bluegrass region of Kentucky, which was obviously one of the largest uh, centers for the African-American population, most of which was enslaved. They selected it as one of the uh, recruitment centers for the U.S. colored troops, and again, the biggest one in the state and the biggest one, in, obviously, in the bluegrass region. Uh, so I think it had to do with, you know, its previous history of being established. Uh, but again, because the inner bluegrass had so such a large population of African Americans, it was chosen. And, and uh, eight regiments were created there, which actually makes it one of the largest in the entire country. What do we know about um, uh, how many uh, troops were there? Um, how unusual it was for their families uh, mm -hmm. to be with them, uh, how they were treated, mm -hmm. what they learned. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was it was a very um, different situation for them and the uh, white soldiers and civilians that were at Camp Nelson. Also, it in the final count, I think about fifty seven hundred men actually enlisted at Camp Nelson. But over 10,000 uh, were trained and stationed there um, through the 1864-65 period. And the origin of it was really kind of interesting because um, Kentucky, being a, a loyal Union state, was uh, uh, slaves, enslaved people were not emancipated by the Emancipation Proclamation of 63. Uh, gradually, the Army... Uh, started enlisting African-American soldiers and delayed this in Kentucky until 1864 because of the resistance uh, by the uh, white leadership. And then in April, they started enlisting um, free African-Americans and enslaved men with their owner's permission which, as you can imagine, didn't lead to a large enlistment. Uh, but then in late May of 64, 250 men escaped slavery and entered the provost marshal's office at Danville to enlist. Uh, and they had heard a rumor that you didn't have to have your owner's permission anymore, which actually was not true. <laughs> But the, the provost marshal told him, uh, I can't sign you up. Won't you go to Camp Nelson? So they did. Uh, <clears throat> the officers at Camp Nelson didn't know what to do with them either and wrote to Louisville for orders. And finally, over a period of about a week or a week and a half, 150 more came, so there were about 400. And... Um, the Army finally relented and, and just signed them up and changed their policy specifically because of this incident at Camp Nelson, which opened the floodgates for enlistment because the men were uh, in, emancipated upon their enlistment. Uh, and because of this, and I think just the idea of, of escaping slavery, 
their women and uh, their wives and children started coming into camp as well. And again, the Army wasn't prepared for this and didn't know what to do with the women and children. And they were still legally enslaved. And from the beginning of the war, the uh, soldiers and particularly officers were, were told not to disrupt Kentucky's institutions, peculiar institutions, meaning mm-hmm. slavery. So they were hesitant to um, uh, know exactly what to do with the women. They sort of let them stay in camp, threw them out periodically. And finally, uh, and again, these were people escaping slavery, leaving their homes with uh, no real idea what was coming. So, you know, you can sort of imagine the courage they had. Uh, And finally, in late November— Were they leaving uh, areas where they were enslaved, where they were uh, on farms or Mm -hmm. doing work for uh, owners, and and, and they left without the owner's permission? Correct. They, They mostly left without permission— um, from farms um, throughout the central bluegrass area surrounding mm-hmm. counties around mm-hmm. Jessamine. Um, and anyway, the end result was the Army uh, expelled about 400 in late November 1864. Of the 400, uh, about 102 died of disease and exposure. Mm-hmm. And this created a national uproar and led to the March 3rd, 1865 Congressional Act, which emancipated the wives and children of the soldiers. And so that and the enlistment of the, the soldiers really began the destruction of slavery in Kentucky. And after that, they built what was called the Home for Colored Refugees uh, at Camp Nelson, which eventually housed over 3,000 uh, women and children. You have brought me a, um, a, a booklet, Seizing Freedom, Archaeology of Escaped uh, Slaves at Camp Nelson, and there are some pictures. The, these mm-hmm. are actual photographs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're really lucky at Camp Nelson. We have about uh, 35 photos, uh, kind of landscape photos of the camp that the uh, Army actually contracted with a photography studio here in Lexington, uh, G.W. Foster, we know who they were, uh, to take those photographs. Uh, And then we also have a number of portraits of soldiers that were at Camp Nelson, and we're continually looking for more portraits, which are normally taken by private studios. Uh, But we're really lucky. We have... um, five or six photos of the Home for Colored Refugees, um, photos of a lot of the buildings at Camp Nelson, um, photos of uh, corrals. They had corrals for 12,000 horses and mules. Uh, So we're really fortunate. We also have four maps uh, and a lot of military documents uh, that... Uh, we have mostly photocopies of things housed at the National Archives. Were the um, African Americans, uh, the women and children, and the men, were they treated well? Um, Eventually they were. You know, the men uh, uh, 
had to put up with a lot of discrimination, mostly from white soldiers and ridiculing. Even though African-American soldiers had been fighting uh, for a number of years and proved themselves in battle, they had to basically continue to prove themselves and reprove themselves over and over again. Um, our guys were involved in um, a couple of battles in southwest Virginia in which on the way down they were ridiculed, but after the battle they were praised for their bravery. Uh, some of our troops were also sent around Petersburg and Richmond, Virginia, and fought in the uh, final breakthrough at Petersburg. Um, so it, it was a kind of a tough situation. Initially, when they enlisted, they were treated mostly as laborers and were put to work kind of like they had been when they were enslaved people. Uh, and they complained about this, and actually their white officers complained about it too, and, and that was stopped eventually, and they were able to be trained and treated more like soldiers, which, which they desired to be, obviously. And after uh, the war, how, what, what happened to the population that was at Camp Nelson? Um, a good question. It, it's hard to say um, all of the people, but some of them left. Uh, the the uh, Freedmen's Bureau, which took over the Home for Colored Refugees, made an effort to resettle people, particularly around uh, central and northern Ohio. A number left and went to Ohio. Uh, some of the men stayed in the Army. Um, and re-enlisted in what later were called the Buffalo Soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, some of the soldiers were not discharged until 1866 or even 1867. A number of our regiments were sent to the Rio Grande Valley to guard against uh, uh, banditry and Indian raids and uh, protect the border from uh, this Mexican Civil War, which was going on, led by uh, uh, Juarez versus Maximilian. Mm -hmm. And um, they complained in letters about why is everyone else getting discharged and we're still down here in the arm. Yeah. Um, about 35 families actually stayed at Camp Nelson. Um, a lot of people went back to their original farms and worked as, as freedmen, uh, tenant farmers or, or sharecroppers. Uh, some saved money and bought their own uh, um, farms. A number um, tried to stay and then in the late, and not the late, the mid to late 1870s, uh, there was a fairly large migration to Kansas uh, which is called the Exoduster Movement. And, uh, you know, the government was giving away land to settlers, and uh, a, a, a number just felt like things weren't really changing in Kentucky in terms of race relations, and, and a large number went to uh, Kansas. Some founded the, the community of Nicodemus, Kansas, particularly from Scott County, Kentucky some of which had been at Camp Nelson, and uh, 
Others went to other parts of Kansas. Um, the ones that stayed at, at Camp Nelson were, were working with the Reverend John G. Fee, who founded Berea College. And he uh, had a vision of, of starting a community there. Uh, and he was working at the time with the American Missionary Association. He tried to get them to purchase the property, which they wouldn't do. So he and his wife, Matilda, actually purchased it themselves and uh, began the, a community that was called Ariel for a while. It's called the Hall Community now. Uh, and again, it was founded by these soldiers and, and um, women and children from the Civil War period that wanted to stay there uh, and start a new community. Um, and John Fee's um, son Howard and um, some local African-American ministers, primarily Gabriel Burdett and a few others became uh, leaders of the community and the um, what was known as the refugee school became the Ariel Academy uh, and was a school um, initially run by the Freedmen's Bureau but then by the, the people themselves. It was basically kind of like a high school, elementary through high school. and, and uh, so, so how active was, um, was the entire Camp Nelson complex um, uh, before and after the the African American uh, mm -hmm. uh, were there. What, was it was it created in the very beginning uh, as an African American conclave? It was not, but um, they did uh, hire a lot of African Americans as laborers. They were uh, called or referred to as impressed slaves, and they would go to the army would go to plantations and farms and even into town. And they would hire, um, impress laborers. They would pay the owners of these enslaved people for their labor, uh, and they would bring them down to Camp Nelson to work on roads or cut wood. Or uh, some of them were skilled laborers, like carpenters or blacksmiths, and they would do that kind of works. And it seems like through the history of the camp, there were somewhere between one and two thousand. Em civilian employees, and it sometimes as many as half of those were impressed uh, enslaved people. Now, what does that term mean? Impressed? Yeah. It just means you didn't have a choice. <laughs> you just, the army went up there and they said, I need 10 guys, mm -hmm. you, 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 yeah. and I'm going to pay the owner, uh -huh. and the owner doesn't have a choice either. They would try to be cooperative and not impress people during harvest times when they had more uh, need for their labor. But if, they, if the Army really needed these people, they would just impress them without anyone's permission. And, and this was the, the Union Army? It was the this. Union Army. Yeah. Exactly. And these, this uh, practice stopped uh, when the United States Colored Troops were um, created. They didn't uh, impress these people anymore. And it's likely that a number of the impressed uh, enslaved men that were at Camp Nelson at the time they started enlisting just shifted right over to the Army, which maybe is another reason initially they were using the, the black soldiers as laborers 
but there was, I'm sure, you know, a racial aspect, racist aspect of that. In your archaeology work there, what have you found? Um, we've found <laughs> many, many things. We, we've excavated, we started excavating sites along the highway, which involved the commercial district and then an industrial site. And then we found unexpectedly uh, a USCT encampment. So we found artifacts associated with soldiers' lives, with a, a machine shop where they did, had woodworking tools and some other tools run by a steam engine, as well as the commercial district, which had stores uh, and restaurants and bars and, and a tavern. Uh, photographic uh, gallery um, and since then we've worked uh, at the Home for Colored Refugees uh, on both the county, Jessamine County's property as well as uh, private property uh, and then on the park proper we've worked at the prison, um, more commercial areas, uh, some more encampments, uh, fortifications. We actually reconstructed one of the earthen fortifications at the camp. It had been uh, damaged by bulldozing and farming over the years, and, and so we chose it to do archaeology on and then reconstruct it so visitors could see what Civil War uh, forts looked like. And if a visitor is there today, mm -hmm. um, I, th there are interpretive uh, tours uh, right. that operate on a regular basis. What, what can a, uh, an interested person um, see and, and witness and, and learn? Well, they can uh, learn all about the history of the camp. Um, usually we begin our tours in the visitor center with a film. We have about a 15-minute film that gives an overview. Then there's uh, exhibit, exhibit space in the uh, interpretive center museum, basically, that tells the story of the camp with the origin and then through the supply services, the defense of the camp, uh, hospital facility, uh, then the African-American enlistment and the story of the African-American refugees. And then we have actually an archaeology room. And then uh, outdoors we have about five to six miles of interpretive trails that have interpretive signs that talk about uh, buildings or activities that took place in that locale. Um, there's only one building from the period still standing, which was uh, a private residence, and then it became officers' quarters, and then returned as a private residence. But we do have uh, a number of above-ground features, uh, like the fortifications or the powder magazine. Uh, bakery ovens, and uh, obviously we have uh, a lot of archaeological sites uh, where 300, over 300 buildings were there and, and likely really? thousands of tents. Uh, 300 buildings and only one, uh, one, one that is uh, standing, still standing. Right. The, the Army, when they decided to shut the camp down, uh, and actually it was there till the summer of 1866, uh, they made a concerted effort to get rid of everything. They had a number of auctions 
including all the buildings they didn't want. And that would why is that? Um, I think they wanted to have some uh, monetary return for their mm-hmm. efforts, and they were going to return the land to the previous owners that they basically rented from during the war. And I, I guess they thought, you know, they wouldn't want these buildings there, and if they could auction off the lumber, uh, people would just take the buildings down and remove the lumber, and the, the government would get some, some some money back. So. The buildings and, and a lot of equipment, uh, they actually had auctions, which were advertised in the newspapers. Um, the main buildings that stayed uh, were ones that had been private uh, before the war, and then the, the buildings at the Home for Colored Refugees, which um, the people, again, 30 or 35 uh, families stayed there. Uh, and eventually uh, acquired that property. Fee, the Fee family bought it, and then they platted it off, and they sold lots back to the mm-hmm. the former soldiers who became the residents there. And Fee basically went back to Berea, which you know he had started mm-hmm. before the war, and then kind of got run out of town. <laughs> um, the, uh, the the name of uh, the Camp Nelson area, Camp Nelson Civil War Heritage Park. Uh huh. And is there not a, um, a movement uh, or a, um, a hope that it will be uh, a, another designation that would mm-hmm. uh, put some federal funding uh, into it? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, um, we've been working with uh, Congressman Andy Barr to, and, and other members of Congress and through the Jessamine County Fiscal Court uh, and other friends groups to... Uh, have us considered as a national monument, which is a, a designation within the National Park Service. Uh, and he introduced a congressional bill to do this, which has pa- actually passed the House of Representatives. Um, and we're providing any support we can towards that effort uh, to bring us into the National Park Service, which we see as a really positive um, development to tell our story to a broader audience, um, nationwide audience, so that people understand what happened at Camp Nelson. What is the uh, that designation? It, it would it would be of great importance. It would mean a, a lot. Mm-hmm. What is the designation? Uh, how does it fall in? the panoply of other national mm-hmm. uh, monuments, national landmarks, mm-hmm. national parks. Na- right. Where, where is this? And this, this would be is that designated national monument? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, we're right now a national historic landmark, which is the, the highest designation the Park Service gives for a property they do not own. And if, if we became a national monument, we would actually be owned by the federal government and be within the national park uh, system. So we would get a big, you know, arrowhead sign out front and uh, uh, we would be managed uh, by the National Park Service uh, and get funding from Mm -hmm. them. How is it managed now? It's managed by the Jessamine County Fiscal Court. So it's their responsibility. It's their property and their uh, uh, responsibility to manage. They have a staff uh, that they have hired, including me, um, and uh, look after the camp. And uh, 
we've had a number of uh, Park Service uh, visitors come up, and they're they're extremely pleased with you know how the county has uh, managed the property and um, communicated the story of Camp Nelson to the public. So, uh, is this designation as a monument difficult? It is difficult. It it uh, it 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 has to be <laughs> approved by the the federal government and um uh ultimately you know the president uh, has to to sign it and uh so congressman barr is is working at that end mm-hmm. well dr mcbride uh, thanks very much it's it's a it's a fascinating tale and and i i venture to say that uh, like so many um uh Things that we don't know in the past. Uh, some of us uh, who are not historians or archaeologists uh, are always uh, seeking ways to uh, broaden our understanding of, of what went on. We're going to have a uh, a couple of podcasts um, uh, uh, talking about the Choctaw Academy, which mm-hmm. has been in existence uh, in Scott County for uh, um, a long, long time mm-hmm. since 1825 since before this right. uh, this this area that we're talking mm-hmm. about and, um, and 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 a lot of people are just now discovering uh, it and and what it can become mm-hmm. so yeah. they're 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 out there aren't they sure there's yeah. there's quite a few and some of them are, are have really dramatic stories to tell uh, again thanks for being on our think humanities podcast well thank you for having me <laughs> Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.